Hello folks and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward, founder of the triathloncoach.com, High Performance Human and the SWAT Inner Circle. And it's my goal to help you upgrade your human performance with improved sleep, nutrition, fitness, mobility and stress management. If you can do that, at least one of those, then you'll be on the pathway to living longer, living healthier and of course, improving your athletic performance. If you're interested in joining me on this journey, please check out my SWAT Inner Circle where you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just £1. All you need to do for more information is email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or you can click on the link in the show notes below. So today's guest is Professor Greg White, OBE. As an Olympian, sports scientist and coach, Greg is uniquely experienced at optimising performance. He's worked as a consultant physiologist in a large number of Olympic and professional sports and has been the Director of Science and Research at the English Institute of Sport and the Director of Research for the British Olympic Association, leading on the preparation of multiple Olympic, Paralympic and Commonwealth teams. I've known Greg as an acquaintance for many years, well enough in fact to be on first name terms and have a beer with after completing the event. The last of these was Marathon Disable back in 2015, where we sat around the hotel pool in Wazazat, Morocco, chatting about our war stories and experiences from the previous seven days. You, on the other hand, may be more familiar with Professor White as the man who helps celebrities to achieve incredible feats as part of Children in Need annual fundraiser. Since first helping David Williams to swim the channel, Greg's been involved with 31 more Children in Need challenges, with celebrities including Joe Brand, Greg James, Chris Moyles and Davina McCall, to name just a few. I recently watched Greg's latest documentary, Black and White, a 45-minute film detailing his attempt to achieve the coveted Black T-shirt award at the Norseman Triathlon. And in fact, as I was watching the film myself, it brought back some very vivid memories of my own Norseman adventure way back in 2009. And for those of you wondering, yes, I did get a Black T-shirt too. So Greg is an amazing guest, really enthusiastic and knowledgeable about his subject and as usual we dive into plenty of topics including how an Olympian stays motivated once they've gone past their peak of fitness, how does stress level at the Olympics compare to something like the Norseman, which was Greg's most hellish challenge and which one he enjoyed and found the most satisfying, how he became trainer to the stars, which of his celebrity challenges gave him the most satisfaction and why. Greg's own daily routine and his thoughts on tracking things such as blood sugar or heart rate variability, some common sense advice about nutrition and our own version of the white answer where Greg gets to answer some of our listener questions and finally I actually ask Greg one myself which is his most asked question, which question does he wish people would ask and what does he hope never to get asked. So Without further ado, let's crack on with today's guest. Welcome to the show, Professor Greg White. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, um, I watched your I watched your Norseman video recently, the black and white, which yeah. we'll post the link to. I, I have um, paid homage to a fellow black t-shirt yes, uh, owner by wearing like. my own black t-shirt from 2009. I am um, pleased to say that these are quite nice lycra so it's stretched a bit but i can still get it on so um yeah but anyway we, we'll come to that later greg most people will know you from your work on bbc with the children in need challenges but 
you didn't go straight into doing that, did you? There was a long road towards that point um, as an Olympic athlete, uh, working your way through the, the ranks of education to become the professor, Greg White. So <laughs> give us a little potted history of how you got started on that, you know, school day, sport. Um, <laughs> yeah, but and, was, and bearing in mind, we've only got 45 minutes for well, the exactly. whole show. Listen, so. It was a long time ago. When you get to my age, remembering <laughs> that far back is a difficult one. Now, I mean, it's like, like, from a sports perspective, I started off as a swimmer. Um, mm. I was national champion at 11. Um, and then classically, as you get with swimming, is that at the age of 14, all your mates leave. Um, and, and to some extent, swimming was my social. I mean, I, I went swimming, mm. not, not necessarily because of the swimmer, but because I was seeing my mates. So, um, it, And it came about an interesting time from an Olympic perspective, because modern pentathlon, which was virtually unknown, in 76, uh, Great Britain won the gold medal, and it was there was a really interesting story. I won't bore you with it, but around Russia cheating um, and being, being well, was that the fence? Was that the fencing That's thing? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Boris Boris Onyshenko, who had a yeah. button inside his guard. And I was remember that. Yeah, during the yeah. fence. I mean, and so it, it was sort of front page news, and then of course Britain went on to win the gold medal. And so was that Richard Fox, uh, so Jim Fox was Jim the Fox. team captain right. at the time. Yeah, okay, um, yeah. and that. Uh, so that so I, I sort of migrated from swimming into modern pentathlon, and I mean, lucky enough, I was fairly decent at it. So I went on to win a world and European medal, um, seven-time national champion, and then uh, I went to the Olympics. So it was it was a great it was a it was a great period for me. But at, at that time, that was pre pre money, pre lottery funding. Modern pentathlon wasn't a sport that got any money, so you either worked or you studied. Um, I like to avoid work as best I can. <laughs> so, uh, so I, uh, so I studied and I did an undergraduate in the mid eighties in this very weird discipline called sports science, which mm. there was only a few places in the country that did it. Um, I went along, didn't really know what it was, but I did it. I had a great time from there. I went to the U S and did the postgrad in the U S and the masters at uh, a place called Frostburg state university, part of the university of Maryland on the East coast. Then came back and did a PhD at St. George's Hospital Medical School. Um, and then that sort of coincided with my retirement, at which point I was appointed as the inaugural um, director of research at the British Olympic Medical Centre. Mm-hmm. And then from the British Olympic Medical Centre, where I looked after the prep of five Olympic teams by summer and winter, I then went on to become the director of science and research for the English Institute of Sport and set that up. Yeah. Um, then the Irish Institute of Sport, I was their director of science for a period of time. And now I'm a, a professor of applied sport and exercise science at Liverpool John Moores University. Mm. So it's uh, it's been a long road. <laughs> so you can certainly talk the talk and you used to be able to walk the walk. Um, but <laughs> yeah. anybody, that's, anybody that's seen your exploits on TV will know that you were... Uh, you can still do that. But it's always interesting me. One would assume that when you get to the Olympics and certainly when you get onto the podium, you've got to be at the peak of your human performance there. And and sometimes, I, mean, I know that, that um, modern pentathlon's got some technicalities as well, so it's not all down to physical fitness like, say, um, an endurance event is. But one would assume that you're at the height of your physical and mental powers then. So as you, as you get older and you retire from the sport, um, how difficult is that to deal with mentally? And, and when you do exploits like you do now, so, you know, we'll talk about the Norseman later. What is it like to stay and how do you stay motivated knowing what you used to be able to achieve? I mean, the, the one thing I would say is I, I think that in general, it's the, the worst thing we do in British sport is look after retiring athletes. 
Um, and I think actually money has made that much worse. Um, you know, in my day, uh, back in my day, you know, um, you had to work or, or study. Uh, and so therefore, when you retired, you had something else to go into. Um, I think sadly now, it's what, we, what I see is an awful lot of athletes who, who are now well-funded, um, but they're not funded to the level that you, you see in, you know, premiership football, for example. So it's not lifelong money. It's money whilst they are training and competing. Mm. Uh, and of course, the, the pressure is on to win medals because it is is money for medals. Um, and so because of that, what they tend to do is, is gather very few additional life experiences like education or, or work experience or skills. And so therefore, it is a, a very difficult period for athletes nowadays when they retire. Um, and, and it's something I do really worry about. And, and to some extent, that's why we see such high levels of depression and suicide in retiring athletes, um, which I think is, is, is one of the key drivers for that. Um, I mean, so, so for me, to some extent, it was a slightly easier transition because I, I had a, a job to go into. Uh, I had a focus. Um, and it was... Um, it was just, to my mind, it's just a different challenge. I, I think sometimes what you've got to think, you know, will I ever be as quick as I was? No chance. I mean, <laughs> it's called aging, you know, and, and there is an inexorable decline. But I think it, for me and much of the work that I now do is, is we look at this decline and whilst we cannot, uh, we cannot reverse that decline, what we can do is we can affect the rate of that decline. And I think the bottom line is that, that you know, there's a lovely phrase of use it or lose it is absolutely true so i think if we keep pushing we keep pushing hard what we can do is we can actually fight against this inexorable decline with aging and i think that the real key to that is to just to make sure that what we do is reset reset our goals um, yeah. in, in, in you know with parity to what our capabilities are now, that's not to say that we give in and, and we accept mm. we're going to go slower i think you know i push without any shadow of doubt i push as hard in training now as i have ever pushed um, but of course, it, critical things that do change are things like recovery, uh, uh, rate of adaptation, and of course, I'm not as quick as I was. But but actually, I'm I'm achieving, in my mind, I'm achieving to what I can achieve. Interesting that Ned Overend said he could still do. You know, you've probably heard about him, mountain biker, um, yeah. duathlete, athlete. I think X Tri racer said I can still do the sort of training I did when I was in my thirties. It just takes me longer to recover now. So, what would have been a seven day training plan is now a fourteen day training plan. Yeah, exactly that. And I think, I, I think, I think that's, that's the biggest issue. I think people often say to me, oh, what's the biggest issue as we age? And I think one of the, the biggest issues for two reasons, I think. One is that obviously with aging, the rate of recovery does, does change. But I think crucially as well is that lifestyle changes is that, you know, we're busy. I've got family. I've got three young children. You know, I've got multiple jobs. You know, we've got a mortgage, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You've got other responsibilities. And so I think what, what we do and, and we have to be very careful of the things we put recovery onto the back burner and, mm. and what that, what then happens. And so many athletes that I see sort of, you know, in my work are those that simply haven't taken into account the importance of recovery. They don't integrate it into their program. And what they try and do is with every spare moment they've got is that they train. Mm. Uh, and actually as we age, recovery is much more important because we require that for the adaptation to take place. Yes, I'm familiar with that in, in my coaching business too, is athletes will come along, you know, they're often high achievers. So they've got, you know, I've got a few spare hours in the week, so I'll do an Ironman. And, uh, you know, I can, uh, um, and so obviously they've, uh, they've built up the amount of training, but they've not taken any consideration for building up the amount of recovery to, to yeah. cater for that. And um, 
it's all very well for a few weeks until everything starts to unravel. And then when we go backwards, we think, well, actually, the things we need to do in there are find time for sleep, pay a bit more attention to nutrition, um, you know, and do the strength work that builds a resilient frame. And, that, and that's really important, isn't it? And I know, in, yeah. again, in, when we, in, in the black and white documentary, there's a little section on there where you talk, you've got, you've got your calf injury, but then there's a section where you go and you, you're doing your Olympic lifting and you're in the gym and you make it a real solid point there about how important strength training is throughout your athletic life, but probably more so as you're getting older to preserve the declining, you know, framework, structure and muscle mass. I mean, I mean that's absolutely true. It's an interesting one because we talk an awful lot about menopause so i mean most of us understand what menopause is and what what happens to women um but actually men, men go through a similar process called somatopause so around the mid-30s onwards we start to see a falling growth hormone falling testosterone and a, as a result what we see and it's classic when we look at just look at a group of men and look at the older men and what you see is a, a reduction in muscle mass and because of that you see a reduction in strength and a reduction in power uh, and so actually some of the key things that we really need as we age is to make sure that we do double down on that strength and power work in order to optimize performance. And I think, sadly, there, there still persists um, two things. One, one is a, a real fear of strength training amongst the endurance community. Uh, there is this, this uh, misguided belief that they're going to become like Arnold Schwarzenegger if they lift a weight. Um, absolutely untrue. <laughs> if only you know, my wife would be pleased. I tell you, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, and and and, and I think it, it's it's crucial that you build into the program that and, and add on top of that, as you quite rightly say, it's not just about performance; it's about injury prevention. And of course, as we age, do we get injured more? Is is a question. But I can tell you, recovery from injury takes longer. Yeah. So we want to avoid it even more. Well, and you lose fitness quicker as well, don't you? So uh, there's there's a sort of double negative whammy to getting injured. Plus, yeah. you know. The frustration of getting injured, the pain of getting injured, and the expense of getting treated—you know—if you could, <laughs> yeah. if you could find a way to uh, to get rid of all those three, I'd be happy. Oh yeah, hold on a minute. There is—it's called a little bit of preparation in the gym. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, it's called planning, you know. And I think the, uh, you know, we sort of focus, I think, a little bit too much on on the the training per se—that bit that we sort of recognise as being the training and, and the preparation. But actually, what we should be doing is looking at the peripherals. And I think as we get older, it's—I always think that there are two there are two sort of truths about as we get older. Number one is we have to work harder uh, in order to maintain our, our performance. But the other thing is that we have to plan more. You know, when you're young, you can fly a little bit uh, because you do recover. You pick up a little niggle and it will get better. Mm. Whereas actually when we get older, you've really got to double down on that and make sure that you focus on that planning and preparation in order to optimize performance. Well, in, interesting on that then do, do you track anything i mean it's very popular i'm wearing a whoop band here so it's very popular Love to it. track heart rate variability the other day uh now sorry um and sleep there's also a growing market for um personal glucose monitors uh, love them or hate them but i'm interested <laughs> in yeah, i'm interested in your views on on both of those and and what you track and what you and what you um just understand well, from your intuitive feel it, it is something to take home and i think my my message is always you cannot polish a turd uh, and just by just by wearing some flash gadgets having lots of testing done uh, and and making sure that you go on strava every single day to compete against your mates doesn't mean you're going to become a better athlete uh, i think that what, what they are is they're complementary i think you know what underpins all of this is hard work and it's consistent hard work. And so I think, you know, I, I, what's always interesting to me, you, know, you, you see it 
in athletic communities, particularly you know the likes of triathlon where I spend a lot of time, but also in, in run as well, is that people thousand pounds on a bike than spend fifty quid a month on good coaching, and, and that to me is just it's nonsensical, you know, because it is your legs that push the pedal around. Um, you can have a flash bike, but the bottom line is the marginal gain that you get from it is nothing like the truly magnificent gain you'll get from good coaching. So I think you know when it comes to tracking and monitoring, I think to my mind what you have to be really careful of is that we've you know it's, I mean I've been in this game for over three decades now, and I've seen the change in what we can do and what we can measure. You know everything's miniaturized, um, everything has become much more affordable. I mean I yeah you know, I remember the days when a VO2 max test you the, the equipment that would fill this office. Yeah, huge great big oxy cart. You know yeah. now I can do it on my laptop. You know. Um, and so I think that's a good thing because it's made it much more accessible. But I think then at the same time, what we're seeing now is I think an awful lot of death by data mm-hmm. is that you've got people who just collect so much data, they have absolutely no idea what to do with it. You know, and, and I watch bikes out on the road and they've got, you know, they've got SRM cranks on, they've got power cranks, they've got heart rate monitors, they've got, you know, I mean, it, it, everything is on there. And you sort of think, what are you doing with all that data? And I think yeah. to, to some extent, the skill, and this is where I think it's always worth making sure that you've got the right people supporting you, is the skill is dissecting that data into, into the data that's important and the data that will have an impact on performance by evaluating it. Mm. So, so to some extent, for, for me, you know, I'm a, I, you know albeit, I, albeit I've spent a long time in this field, I'm relatively old school in this, mm. um, in, in the sense, but, but the reason I'm old school in it is because I know what works for me. Yeah. I think on, on people I'm working with, I may be doing much more tracking, much more monitoring, much more testing. Mm. Um, but 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 you know, I've been I've been doing this for nearly fifty years now, so to some extent, I know what works for me. Um, but equally, you know, when, when new things come out, I always try them. We take a look at them and see what see what works, see what doesn't work, and see what's going to add value. And I think that's the key. If you're going to invest, make sure it's adding value. It's not just about what looks good on your wrist. Yeah, I think where I get frustrated is that people who are new to the sport come in and they want all the gadgets first because that's what's popular, that's what you can show your friends, that's what you can put onto social media, and they miss out on learning to go by feel. They, they, you know, we, you'll be able to explain as a scientist far more eloquently than I will just how important RPE is and just how good the elite athletes are at judging pace and effort to the, you know, to within a second. I mean, you you only have to watch. Um, um, world record attempts on the track and, and see those runners like clockwork going around and hitting the exact pace with nothing more than their feel to go by and, and yeah. maybe the pace clock in the stadium but new, athletes that are new to sport just yeah. don't, they don't learn they don't take the time yeah. to learn that and then when the gadgets stop working they're sort of all at sea because they don't know what to do well they're lost you know and, 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 and I mean it's an interesting concept and I have this debate with a good mate of mine Andy Lane Professor Andy Lane is a sports psych up at Wolverhampton and just recently we were having this debate because I think it, it permeates everything. And I think, you know, at one end you've got the athletes, at the other end you've got the, the you know, you've got the park runners. Um, and, and often what you hear is that actually the, the data, the information is, creates a negative experience mm-hmm. because instead of going out and actually enjoying the, the surroundings and enjoying the run and actually spending time, to my mind, you know, things like meditation, exercise is incredibly meditative. Unless, of course, you are constantly obsessed by going like this. 
Mm-hmm. What pace am I at? What's the heart rate? You know, constantly on it. And, and actually what it can be, it can actually be incredibly detrimental to performance. Mm. Whilst I, I fully agree with what you're saying. I think RPE, this rating of perceived exertion, how hard am I working, is absolutely crucial uh, within, within, this, within training. Because what it does, it, it, it moderates what you are doing on a continual basis. And then, what, again, going back to the tech, what the tech is doing is supporting that. It's not instead of. And I think that's where people get it wrong when it comes to the tech, is that they assume that the tech will take the place of the understanding and the work. So you talk about being old-fashioned, and I love that, being old school. I mean, everything comes around, doesn't it? You know, you look at that Lydiard methods with polarized training are coming back in. Kettlebells are fashionable now, you know, things that, you know, my granddad my granddad used yeah. to have one as a doorstop and uh, <laughs> that sort of stuff. So um, what's you, you, to me, epitomize the life of a high-performance human. You know, you're at the top of the tree in terms of your, your work. Um, you clearly have a lot going on, and yet you still manage to achieve your own um, personal fitness goals and obviously you've got a family and, and three children that you bring up so what's in your daily routine um you know uh, you mentioned meditation is that something you do on a regular basis do you write a gratitude diary have you got any other habits that you uh, that you do no i mean i, I mean it, it's, it's an interesting question i mean to some, you know i guess going back to what i just said about sort of i, I mean for me exercise is meditative i think you know exercise you know when i go out training it's my opportunity just to escape Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you know people you know people often say to me do you have music when you're going i mean no chance i mean, what, no, I, mean I just either. want to, i want some quiet i just <laughs> you know the only, the only noise i want to hear is wind you know and 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 or water and and so i think you know to some extent um but that said actually particularly during lockdown i found actually that, that a little bit of a little bit of self-care when it comes to things like meditation just shutting off um, I think is is has been incredibly valuable um, because we found ourselves in a really unusual situation where actually there's been quite a lot of pressure. You know, again for us with three kids, homeschooling, um, a change in the working habits, working, you know, living at work effectively. Um, so I think I, to some extent I've, I've sort I, I have a, a very structured plan, but but it is always flexible, and I think it should be flexible to, in in order to actually respond to what the environment is uh, as it changes as we go through. Um, but you know, on a weekly basis, I've got a training plan, um, and again, that's flexible now because you know gyms and pools aren't open, uh, so that changes. Um, and obviously, see, you have seasonal changes when it comes to things like open water swimming. I mean, I'm still open swimming at the moment, but it's it's not particularly pleasant in wow. six degrees C, you know. <laughs> but, and six um, and six percent body fat, I think. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah, even worse. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, I train. I probably have a day off a week, um, but again, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm flexible on that just to monitor what, what's, you know, what the response is, what's going on. Um, and after a particularly heavy training session, um, then it, I, I may well, I may well add a, a recovery day in based upon response. So it is, it, it's, it's about, it's about having a structured plan, but making sure you've got flexibility built in. And none, of, none of those other things. And you, what, what you like, you talked about importance of sleep. Um, how, how religious are you in terms of sleep consistency and the number of hours you get a night? You know, sleep is everything. I think, you know, it's a fool's errand to assume that you can train hard and not sleep. Um, absolutely erroneous. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, big supporter of sleep. Um, and, and to some extent, I think, you know, often we talk about, you know, is it eight hours sleep? Is it seven hours? It, uh, to some extent, it's it's incredibly heterogeneous. It, it, it's what you respond to and what works for you. I think that's the key to it. Um, but certainly, I think good sleeping habits are really important. 
uh, is that often people think that when they go to bed and so therefore that inc- that counts as sleep, it doesn't. Ah, nah. You know, it's about time to sleep. It's about being in sleep. It's about like, that quality sleep, the REM sleep. Um, and so I, I think making sure that you've got the right sleep environment, right, making sure you've got the right habits when it comes to sleep. Because what again, what we're talking about is optimizing the time that we've got. Uh, because you spend 10 hours in bed does not mean to say you're getting 10 hours of good sleep, uh, whereas actually you could spend six hours in bed and get six great hours of sleep, which would be yeah. much more beneficial. Mm. So it's, it's just making sure that that sleep hygiene is optimized, so you optimize your recovery. And what about your nutrition? Do you have any particular philosophies, or is it just to eat real food and uh, and cook cook your own stuff? I mean, generally, I mean, so two rules of thumb. One is uh, make it yourself, uh, because when you do that, you know what's in it. Mm. I think one of the big problems with processed food nowadays is that it's heavily sugar laden. Uh, they are hidden sugars. Um, again, importantly, remember that as we age, um, we become a little bit less insulin sensitive. Um, diabetes rises with age, and so therefore you have to be careful about processed sugar and excessive processed sugar. So I think you know, make it yourself. You know, you know what's in it. And I think secondly, it's, it always sounds a bit trite, but it's, it does work, and that is eat the rainbow. I think if you look at your plate of food and it's beige, uh, you know you're in the wrong place. You know? Yeah. And I think you know, a bit, well, I always say eat the rainbow because what that means is the color really comes from fruit and vegetables. So it means if you are eating a very broad range of colors. You're optimizing micronutrient uh, intake, but at the same time, you've got roughage, you've got everything else that is required from fruit and vegetables. So I think they're the mainstays. And then I think, again, I I always think uh, you probably get this feel through all of this. We talk about technology, we talk about training. I think what you've got to do is you've got to do the basics well. Uh, and, and again, Mm. if you've, what you've got to focus down on is having a, a very healthy, balanced diet so a good quality based diet and, and it's the good quality based diet from which you build uh, and, and i think you know i'm I, I mean i have a supplement company so you know and i do use supplements but they are very targeted supplements uh, which are which are, which are taken for a very specific requirement hmm. um, and again listen if you've got a poor diet doesn't matter how many supplements you take you cannot polish a turd so get get it get the base right and then what you can then do is build from that. Yeah, significant what you're saying there because that echoes the message from you know several other guests that I've had on nutrition specialists, gut health specialists, talk about diversity, talk about the rainbow, talk about getting the fundamentals right. You know, and and yeah. I, we keep coming back to that. And yet everybody's still after the secret. You know, the secret ingredient. It's like <laughs> there is no secret. You've got to think long term. You've got to put your health first, and you've got to get the fundamentals right. And if you do all those, actually. You can take your eye off the time that you're going to do. You'll get pretty close. It's when you start just focusing on the time that you miss all the other key things. Yeah, and I think I think also you know I, I, I empathise with people because actually you know if you want if you want confusion, then look at nutrition. Uh, it is there are so many conflicting messages and a constant diatribe of messages just coming through about nutrition. And I think, you know, very rarely do we talk about the basics. What we're, we are, you're absolutely right. We're always looking for that, that shortcut, that fad, that magic bullet. And actually, the bottom line is what we should do. What I would always suggest is always come back to basics first and then build from there. And I think what you're looking for is indication. You know, is there a requirement for a supplement? You know, so, you know, classically, we live in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, very little sunlight during the during the uh, during the winter months is vitamin D required. Well, 
Firstly, I would say, are you vitamin D deficient? If you're going to supplement with vitamin D, um, equally, equally, you have to think about actually that that sun exposure on the face for 15 minutes will will is op- will optimize vitamin D uh, levels. So you, you don't need a great deal of sunshine. You don't need to live in the Caribbean to get that. But but equally, what you should be doing is looking: do I need it? Is there a requirement for it? Is there an indication? And actually, the same runs all the way through to protein. You know, if you're going to use protein. When are you using it? How are you using it? So it's about timing. It's about quality. It's about quantity. And it's about linking that with what you're trying to achieve. Mm. You mentioned your supplement company. Can you expand on that a little bit? What, what specifically do you do and what supplements do you take? You know, based on, I guess that is based on what you've discovered is your personal need. And um, perhaps there's, there's an aging element in there is things that are going to produce longevity and health as well or lead to it. Yeah. I mean, so a, a very close friend of mine, a guy called James Greenwell, we used to compete internationally together. He runs, a, he runs a, a, actually a beauty and supplement company already and has done for many years. But for, for a long period of time, we've always been talking about this. And, and there, there are two aspects to this, because one is about quality. Um, well, one of the biggest problems with supplements is that, is that there is no regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so therefore, you know, what, what it says on the side of the tin <laughs> could be anything inside the yeah. tin. And, if, you know, as a rule of thumb, if it's cheap, it probably isn't what it says on the tin. Um, but uh, so there's a quality issue. Add on top of that, I spent, when I was at the British Olympic Medical Centre, um, I actually was, was part of the team that created um, the, the testing of supplements to, to uh, ensure that it wasn't contaminated. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the key is also to make sure that, that what you, what you, what you are taking is not, is not, um, is not, uh, contaminated. And, and, and that can be, that can be deliberate contamination, uh, on, on behalf of the manufacturers. Um, it can, it can also be just inadvertent contamination because many of these supplements are, are produced on the same lines as, as other pharmaceutical, um, products. So informed sport is, is the badge you're looking for, um, which means that it's tested. And, and what you know is it's quality and it's contaminant-free. And then on the other side of it is that we have spent an awful long time now looking at collagen. Ah, um, interesting. And, uh, so we can't even talk longer at it. But, I mean, what one-third of total body, uh, total body protein is collagen. So collagen is incredibly important. And, and where is it important? It's effectively the scaffolding. Uh, of our connective tissue so where we see it's been ubiquitous in the beauty industry for quite some time in hair nails and skin as we know it's really important in that connective tissue but also what we're now gaining much greater understanding is the importance of collagen in connective tissue internally in -hmm. particular things like ligament tendon cartilage and muscle right um and of course does that matter? Well, it matters because what we see with aging is we see a, a, a ubiquitous reduction in collagen content. Uh, interestingly enough, for women uh, at menopause, it reduces dramatically, and, and hence why you see dramatic changes in skin and hair and nail quality post menopause. Um, they actually, women see around about a thirty percent reduction in total body collagen um, around the menopause. So, so what, what we've done is we've designed a supplement range. Um, which is built around collagen. So it includes collagen gels, um, but also improves protein with collagen. Um, and then on a side of that, we've actually looked at some other areas around things like uh, antioxidants, 
uh, antioxidant supplementation and actually vitamin D. And again, ensuring that you've got the right quantity and quality of vitamin D. So it's, it's, it's not a particularly wide range, but it's, it's very much targeted at what we're trying to achieve. Can I, can I just ask you a quick question about the vitamin D then? Do we get enough sunlight? You talked about a minimum of you know, 15 minutes exposure to the sun is enough. Is that the same during the months of October through to March when the, the Northern Hemisphere sun is much lower and less powerful? So uh, the answer to that is that you, you, you need more during the winter months in, in, because of that, because you've got a change in, in the, the, the sort of power, if you like, the power of the sunlight, which is much more powerful in the summer, which we, you know, we can understand. I think the interesting thing is that for people who are exercisers, you know, like you and I, and probably many of the people listening now, is that we spend a huge amount of time outside, uh, and, and you don't need to be in shorts and t-shirt for this. This is just facial exposure. Mm. Um, so, so I think you know, if, if, you, if you're spending prolonged periods of time out training, um, then the likelihood is that you're not going to be deficient in vitamin D. Um, if, if, but if you are particularly concerned, obviously there are tests that you can do to take a look at, at what your vitamin D level is and whether mm. you require supplementation. So I think you know what, what I would generally say is that vitamin D is a particular problem for people who don't go outside very much, um, whose diet is poor in vitamin D, um, and and critically around things like aging. So geriatrics we often see uh, who are vitamin D deficient. Um, interesting enough. I've done work in Qatar and other places, some of the hottest <laughs> places on the planet. You actually see vitamin D deficiency yeah. there because nobody goes outside. Everyone stays in air conditioning. Uh, it's, it's, it's an intriguing response. So it's not just about having the sunshine, it's exposing yourself to the sunshine. That's the key to it. Do they also not have quite low levels in Australia where that whole slip, slap, slop campaign has been going on as an anti-skin cancer? But of course that has yeah. you know other costs. No, they're absolutely right. And, and, and um, some sunscreen... Uh, can significantly reduce uh, your exposure to the right waves uh, of, of light, uh, which will produce 120, uh, 125 hydroxy vitamin D and then a cascade down from there. Um, uh, but that said, what you, in that, you have to get this very fine balance. You know, skin cancer is a very real problem. Making sure you protect yourself against it is absolutely crucial. But at the same time, very short periods of time, you know, very hot conditions, very short periods of, of time exposed to the sun without screen, particularly at either end of the day, uh, what you do is you limit the potential damage but optimise uh, vitamin D production. That's, that's my thing when I'm in a hot climate is just to either get up early and uh, you know go for a walk in the sun before it gets too hot or sit out late on in the afternoon and just read a book for half an hour you know and so i get that, that like a double hit of vitamin d exposure and a little bit of sort of uh, parasympathetic uh, optimization <laughs> for sure um, i mean just on that because the other thing that does make a difference is skin color uh, yeah. and, and and we've seen that interesting enough through covid um, is that what certainly what we do know is a vitamin D deficiency is in, uh, in it, it has a greater prevalence in uh, in the BAME community, particularly black and black and uh, Asian, um, and so therefore again making sure that you get you optimise that that exposure is really important too. Let's talk about your own challenges then, Greg. Uh, we mentioned the black and white documentary, um, and uh, we'll post a link to that. If anybody's not seen it yet, it's definitely well worth. Um, well worth half an hour of your time. And I can say that although the Norseman is 11 and a half years in my past, watching that documentary brought back every single moment of that, the bit, the preparation the day before going out on the ferry and all those nervous faces jumping off, um, jumping off the ramp and into the, uh, into the dark fjord, swimming back towards 
um, I'd fjord with the bonfire on the beach, yeah. uh, <laughs> getting changed in that freezing cold transition, the two-hour slog up up out of um, onto the plateau, and then just yeah. the constant headwind and riding along that last um, plateau, the Telemark plateau, where all I could see were visions of um, Richard Burton and the Telemark heroes there, you know, and uh, <laughs> over these never-ending false flats. And my, my helper saying, "Just one more now." I'm like, "Look, if you say that again, I'm going to throw this <laughs> bike." Sorry. And then, and then, just as you go over the lip and down past those two hairpins, and then you've got that beautiful thirty meter, thirty uh, k descent into the. Yeah. Too. I, I, every single bit of that, I was living it with you. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad you were. Please, it was please, misery. <laughs> please, um, please do watch it if you've got the time. But also, the last time we met was 15, uh, not 15 years ago, in 2015, at the end of the Marathon Disable in in Wazazat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you've taken on some, you've taken on some pretty big challenges um, in your life. What, what <laughs> other know. things? What I others have you done? Why. <laughs> I just, it's an interesting one because obviously I, I do or have done all the work with Comet Relief and Sport Relief and that was mm. uh, 32 challenges um, and that affected me sort of every other year and so I, I got this penchant that in between years I would do something for myself and so I'd take on a big challenge um, and, then, and then you sort of get into this this mode where you think well I'll, I'll take on the ones where they say it's the toughest you know the toughest on the planet <laughs> yeah. so you know the, the Norseman is a great example of that they call it the toughest triathlon on the planet um, it is even if you don't agree with that it is utterly brutal um, the Marathon de Saab, the toughest foot race on the planet was just I mean what a great experience I mean mm. just one of the one of the yeah. truly great races totally think, agree. really um, we did uh, back in 2008 did the race across America cycle from uh, Oceanside in California to Annapolis in Maryland. Uh, we did that as a team of four. That was just magnificent. I mean, what a what an incredible race. So we just in terms of planning, I think it's always sort of the best example of, of to our mind what, what planning is about. What we wanted in the four-man team was to get onto the podium. Um, and we looked at the – so I looked at all the previous races and then looked at the the times – uh, that were on the podium and we we had, had an uh, idea about what time would be required and on that we thought we would have to average 20 miles an hour for 3,100 miles um, in a relay format obviously um, but you do go over you, the, the climb is from the earth's surface to the stratosphere so you go over the you go over the rockies and then much worse actually at the end of the race you go over the Appalachians um, but we estimated that we needed 20 mile an hour average uh, and we went 20.03 mile an hour average and we finished third and we got on the, got on the podium so uh, that was a great race you know so yeah i mean i i i, I, I saw on the english channel and the Gibraltar straits and um and various others i think actually one, one of my favorite ones that i did was when i was 50 it was a few years ago now uh, um, the red bull steps yeah, well, I did the steps. That was great. So I did, I did 50 at 50. So I did, in my 50th year, I did 50 swim events around the world. And, and they ranged from the, from the Red Bull Neptune steps in a, in a canal in Glasgow in March. And uh, if you think that sounds dreadful, it's everything you think it is. <laughs> it was horrendous. But it was a great race. It was a great race. Really good fun. Um, if, if, if you know, for people who've never seen it, effectively you go along a canal. It's, it's only about four, four hundred, five hundred meters. Um, but along the canal, you've got the, the um, you've got the locks, and you have to climb up the locks. And they've got climbing walls or, or ropes 
um, that climb up lots, and then you dive into the next section, the way you go, it is brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal, but it was a brilliant race. And then in that same year, I did a swim from uh, Nevis to St. Kitts in the Caribbean, which was probably the best swim I've ever done in my life. <laughs> so it was quite a strange year that year, but I did uh, 50 swims all over the world, and they were just uh, magnificent, talking about drowning prevention uh, and the importance of learning to swim. So it was did, great. Did you do the dot? Did you do the Bosphorus swim in that year as well? Uh, no. So the Bosphorus came uh, two years ago, and that was when oh, I yeah. trained. I trained Sylvia Mack. In fact, if, if you go to my website, the film of that is on there, um, and that was that was magnificent. I mean, what a great swim! If you if you ever want to do a swim, yeah, um, it's on my it's on my bucket list. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. A, 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 I think it's definitely a bucket list swim. It's incredible. You swim from Asia to Europe. It's the yeah. wonderful thing to be able to say. <laughs> yeah, and it's they close it for one day in the year, don't they, from uh, river traffic? Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting. They say they close it. They close it for the race because um, just before we're getting in, you get in on the Asia side, uh, and a super tanker came up past us as it came up the Bosphorus. And then that was that was the final the final ship to come past us. We then get in and go um, six and a half k swim. Um, it's a great swim. I mean, just a great swim. Incredible, really iconic because what you what you swim through and where you swim past. Um, and then as soon as the race is finished, up come the super tankers again. So it's a, it's a really strange experience, but absolutely fantastic. So in a quick one then, what, what was your most hellish challenge and what, what was your most enjoyable? Because uh, you've, you've reeled off a whole load there and each one seems to have brought you some joy. I do, I do, I, 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 I've loved them all, I think, to be, to be honest with you. Um, I'm not a man who redoes things. I don't, I don't go back and redo them. Um, I think, uh, interestingly on that, I think probably the Marathon de Sable is the one event that I would go back again. Yeah. And, and not necessarily just for the running. I think actually the camaraderie of, of everybody was just incredible. The camp at night when everybody would camp together and, and you know, you're, you're in a tent with, with six other people, seven of you in a tent. And it's it, it just something very special about that place, about the Sahara. Um, but, yeah, I mean, do you know what? They're all, they're all magnificent. They're all great fun. Not at the time. Only when you look back. At- <laughs> yeah, I'd concur with that whole MDS thing. I did it twice. I did one two thousand and one, and then then the year that we both did it. And the first year, I didn't really metaphorically. I, I went with my head down. I suffered. You know, I was struggling. The, the the second time I did it, I decided to go a little slower, but but go with my head up and take in the scenery and and meet the people. And it was it was spectacular. So yeah. uh, let, let's talk about your uh, well. Let's talk about what's still on your bucket list and what you're doing next. Wow, on the bucket list. There's so many things on the bucket list, to be honest with you. Um, I think the great thing is that on planet Earth, there are so many fantastic challenges. Uh, and I think what you should never do is close yourself down to anything. Um, I think what I do like to do is, is, is try different things. Um, so I think some, some of the sort of the, the, cold, the cold weather challenges, I haven't done, I've done a few, but um, I'd, I think I'd like to do a few more of those. Uh, and not they aren't all massive. So something like the Engadin Marathon, which is a cross-country ski race, looks oh, absolutely yeah. brilliant. I'd love to have a, have a crack at that. Um, but equally, you know, I've worked with a whole host of, of people on, on big challenges in the snow, uh, including poles. Um, I mean, like last year, we, we sort of ticked one off. I looked after a client and we broke the world record for seven marathons on seven continents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was a that was definitely a bucket li- li- uh, list tick with running marathons on Antarctica and then mm-hmm. obviously starting yeah. in Antarctica yeah. and then um, so yeah I mean, do you know what there's loads to do I think there's still a few 
um, extreme triathlons, I'd like to do too. I think Pat- pa- Pat- Patagon man, Patagon man, list. yeah, because yeah. that just looks just absolutely incredible. And I think you know, uh, you know, going back to what you just said about you know going back to MDS and and sort of taking taking it as an experience. I think what's really important for anybody who's listening to this is that actually you know. I, I don't don't worry about times and positions and places. You know, I think that the, the key is to, to go out and just enjoy it and 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 it is, it's an, treat it as an experience rather than a race. And I think you'll gain so much more out of it. Just going back to that Norseman thing, um, stress levels as you about. Uh, I mean, you look you look like you're in 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 the zone there. But you know, I'm thinking about the Olympics and then the Norseman. Do they compare? Or once you've been to the Olympics, does nothing compare to the start line there? <laughs> it's an interesting one it's, it's an interesting question i think you know i think when you're when you're an when you're an athlete an athlete is your job you know to some extent so you know when you're younger i think actually the pressure is so much greater because it because it in your mind at that time it is all that matters everything is riding on that uh, and i think when you get older when you get to the the start line of of the norseman um it's not it, the, the trepidation is different. It's not trepidation about, you know, am I going to get in the top 10? I mean, I was looking for a black T-shirt, so that meant, you know, top 165. So that, yeah. there, therein lies something, a, a different approach. Um, but equally, I think, you know, the, the trepidation is, am I going to make it to the end? I mean, these things are brutal. They're not for the faint-hearted. Mm. Um, so I think to some extent it's what, but, but, but equally on top of that, it's not, you know, it's not my job. It's not how I make a living. Um, and and I am I am absolutely there by choice, um, and having spent an awful lot of money to be there. So, yeah. so I think you know, you know. So my, I think my attitude is always that yeah. I mean, I, with no doubt about it. I mean, everyone's nervous at the start of, of any event, um, but I think I, I I embrace it very differently than what I did. And and if if I'm honest with you, I wish that when I was a younger athlete, I'd perhaps have embraced it in the same way. Uh, because what what you do learn with age is that actually it isn't life, um, and it is you know it, all you all you can ever do all you can ever do is your best, uh, and if you go out and do your best, that is that's all you can ever ask of yourself. That that's an interesting concept. I talked with Mandy Hickson, who's a fighter pilot. She was one. I don't know if you ever come across one of the first um, frontline fighter pilots piloting tornadoes, you know, mm-hmm. over the Gulf in the Gulf War, and she said. It's, it's about being the best you can be competing with yourself. And I think that's a lesson that we all should learn. Even if you're an Olympic athlete, we're really, you know, and it's, it's part of what I'm keen to emphasize as a coach is about process rather than outcome. Yeah, and, absolutely. And just being better than the day before in yourself. You know, it doesn't matter. You, often you can't affect what somebody else does. I mean, when, you, when you're fencing with somebody, you can. But when you're running, you can't really affect somebody else. All you yeah. can do is your own best and your own best performance in the circumstances, can't you? No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think if, you know, the truth is that if you focus on that, if you focus on you, you will perform better. Mm. You know, the idea that that you're going to win a race because everybody else falls over, um, it, I mean, that's no way to plan, is it? <laughs> absolutely not. Um, what, how, how did you get the job of celebrity to the stars then? This the whole children need thing. It's been going on for a while now, but uh, yeah, I don't. I seem to remember somebody else was involved with it before you. No, God, I, so no? It, 2005 it was. I got right. a call from a, a good mate of mine who is now a very close friend of mine, a guy called Kevin Cahill, who I call the billion pound man. So he was the, the CEO of Comic Relief. Um, he raised 
uh, over a billion pounds during his tenureship. I mean, I'm wow. a truly incredible achievement. Um, but he, I, I got a call one afternoon, um, and he, he came on to me. He said he said who he was, and he said that um, he had this comedian who wanted to swim across the English Channel. Um, and it came through another mate of mine, uh, Steve Cram, if you know Crammy. Oh, yeah. uh, so so Crammy was on the board. I was working at the English Institute of Sport at the time, and Crammy was on the board. Uh, Kevin had spoken to Steve, and uh, Steve said, well, just give Whitey a call. So Kevin was on the phone to me saying, you know, are you interested? I have this dreadful penchant saying yes to just about everything. <laughs> um, and so it, literally three days later, in, in came David Williams. Um, I didn't even know it was until he walked through the door. Um, and that, that was actually the first the first celebrity big challenge uh, that we saw. I mean, fortunately, he was he was successful, 10 hours, 28 minutes. Um, and he raised a million pounds on a single challenge. I think it was the first to raise a million pounds on a single challenge. Um, and, and that sort of set the scene. And that was 2006. And then since that time, I, I looked after 32 Comet Relief and Sport Relief Challenges, where we raised over well, in excess of £50 million for people less fortunate ourselves. So it's, it's a fantastic achievement. Which of those gave you the most satisfaction, Greg? Oh, man. It, uh, I, loved, I, I honestly loved them all. I really did. I mean, I think, I think probably, it's an interesting one. I think probably my favourites are always the solos. So that is David Williams on the, the channel, the Thames. Um, I think uh, Davina McCall was just brilliant on her on an ultra triathlon from Edinburgh down to London, John Bishop on his art to arch, Eddie Izzard, 53 marathons, in, <laughs> uh, 43 marathons in 51 days. Um, Joe, Joe Brand was incredible. You know, Joe Brand walked from Hull to Liverpool, um, which was, you know, stupendous. And so, you know, I think the solos uh, hold a special uh, place in my heart. But, but, but that said, you know, the team ones were fantastic as well. We, we climbed Kilimanjaro twice, uh, with two different teams, that was fantastic. The million-pound cycle from John O'Groats to the Lands End—that was a—that was a real treat. And actually, uh, I, one thing I didn't mention there was Greg James. We did some fantastic, two fantastic challenges with Greg. The pedal to the peaks during the Beast of the East was <laughs> was absolutely gargantuan. But yeah, no, do you know what? I, I love them all. They're great people, and it was a, it was an honour to work with them. All right. Well, listen, um, we've got a few minutes left, hopefully. Uh, you have a little thing on your website called the White Answer. You've got a little, I think you've got a little, you, you've got your T-shirt on there yeah, with the White yeah, Answer. Yeah, and, yeah. You, and you ask people to challenge your your knowledge and experience oh, with, okay. with questions. So um, <laughs> I'll put a link to this so that those people who didn't get on it um, on my social media can perhaps uh, come in afterwards. Um, um, I suppose we're going to have to go for very short answers here. What's we'll try. This is my question. What's the most asked question? Um, how hard can I push without breaking myself? Okay. And, and, and that generally comes from coaches. How hard can I push the athlete without breaking them? Which question do you wish people would ask? Oh my goodness. Um, I, I, I wish rather than the question, I wish people would say more often, much like we've just said, I, I wish they would say, look, I just want to do the best that I can possibly do. All right. What do you hope you never get asked? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I, it's interesting. I've never been asked, uh, but, I, but if it was anything to do with doping, 
I hope that nobody ever asked me about that. That that was on mine. I once got asked that by when I was working as a conditioner for a professional rugby league team. One of the players said to me, Wardy, do you think you can help me? And I said, I'm helping you. He went, no, help me, you know, wink, wink. And I went, you're talking to the wrong person. Absolutely right. You know. yep. Okay, right. These are some questions that have come in. Okay. A friend of ours. <laughs> you probably guess who this. He says, are you still a fan of a good fry-up? <laughs> <laughs> it must be lovely. It is lovely. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. I, I used to live in Warsaw. Uh, I taught at the University of Wolverhampton, where I know Steve Lumley from uh, very, very well. And uh, and there was a fantastic greasy spoon where, where after a really hard session, we would go to a greasy spoon. Am I still a fan? Absolutely. You cannot beat it, I'll tell you. <laughs> the 90 10 rule, eh? 10%, 10% suit yourself. Well, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, you got you have to enjoy it, and that is absolutely the truth. You're absolutely right. Uh, I think you might have answered this. What's your view on how to get faster over long endurance racing? Uh, if I summarise what I think you've said, do the basics right, be the best you can be on every day, and you'll get pretty close. Well, that's it. and the other thing I think to remember is that you know what, what we've got to do is dissect dissect the performance down into its determinants you know what so let's, let's say running for example look but you know what we know is there are various aspects to, to endurance running you know it's not all about vo2 max vo2 max is important but it's velocity at vo2 max but equally it's actually also about uh, economy it's about lactate threshold and it's about maximum running velocity and i think that end one is the really interesting one so you know do you want to get quicker look uh, your, your marathon pace is dictated by your half marathon pace which is dictated by your 10K pace, which is dictated by your 5K pace, which is dictated by your mile pace. So the assumption that you can get quicker over a marathon just by running long and running steady is utterly erroneous. So I think the one thing I would say is that often what we do, again, when we go to endurance, interesting enough, we just, I'm just filming some stuff around this, is that often what we do is we, we avoid the gym, uh, we avoid strength and power, and we avoid speed. And I think that they are probably the, the, the three components that will make a difference to your marathon running speed. So on that point then, polarised training, um, which Maffetone talks about, Stephen Siley, you've probably um, listened to him and probably you know him quite well, is 80 to 90% of that long steady stuff, but significant quantities, as in you know, 10% of your weekly volume or sessions dedicated to very high intensity above above threshold intensity. So is that is that the way in which you tend to train m- most of the year? Yeah, I think yeah, you've got to respect the distance. Uh, I mean, there's two ways of doing it. So, so from a periodized perspective, I, I had, so with the, with the Norseman, for example, I did a reverse, I, I reverse periodize. So what I do is I do the, the distance early and then try and build the speed into it uh, as we go through. Uh, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, no, the other way around. Stand, stand approach. Yeah. With, with the Norseman, what I do is actually work on speed, and then and then so I'm looking at target speed, and then what I do is I go longer yeah. at that target speed. So you sort of reverse periodize it in. I, I think what, what what is absolutely true is that look what what you've got to do is understand what the determinants are. So what are the things that that make up performance? And then what you need to do is profile yourself against those to identify your strengths and your weaknesses. What you're trying to do is maintain those strengths, but optimize those weaknesses. Because mm-hmm. as trite as it always sounds, you know, performance is like a chain and you're only as strong as the weakest link. You know, and, and you can have a VO2 max, you know, in the late 60s. Um, but if your if your PB mile is eight minute miling, uh, then you know you're not you're not you're not going to run it you're not going to run a three hours you know so i think it's 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 about making sure that what you do is profile yourself against each of those determinants and then 
the, t- the training should be targeted to optimize the weaknesses and maintain the strengths. Mm. Got a question here from somebody who says, how long does it take to achieve peak performance? And is there an age limit? Well, I mean, if you, if you, if, if you believe Matthew side, who's a, you know, who I know well, you know, it's 10,000 hours. I mean, I, I fundamentally could contest that because I think what it's about, it's actually incredibly heterogeneous, number one. Uh, and number two, it depends who you are. It's, it's very individual. And, and he would say this anyway, you know, he would say this, is that it's just a notional issue. I mean, it, it, and, and then, of course, it then comes down to what is peak performance? You know, what are you actually talking about? Because, you know, what we do know is that post the age of 35, things change, you know, uh, hormones change, you know, we've already spoken about the strength, et cetera, changes. So, you know, it's an age, generally an age-specific peak performance. Uh, how long does it take to get there? Uh, it definitely doesn't take a day. Um, but but equally, you will get there much quicker if you've got the right coach. And, and I think it's, you know, nothing great is ever achieved alone. Uh, and making sure you've got the right team around you is the way to optimise your performance. I've only got one goal now, and that's to outrun the Grim Reaper. As long as I can stay ahead of him, I'll be happy. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> couple couple more left. Let's, let's talk about... Um, the mind now, uh, how do you train your mind to push fatigue to one side whilst training and, and whilst racing? I mean, uh, you know, in the black and white documentary, uh, and of course it makes good TV, but on a lot of those sessions, you look to be gritting your teeth and really working through it. And I'm sure you don't train that hard all the time. Um, but but it's, equally, it's not, I think it's an interesting one, but I think, you know, to some extent you've answered the question. I think often people think that, that somehow that, that psychology is, a, you know, you do the physiology and that's the training, that's the physiology, it's the body. And then you do the psychology on the side. I think the one thing to absolutely critically remember is that every single training session, what I am doing and what we should all be doing is you're doing physiological, psychological, technical, uh, technical, tactical, yeah. nutritional, biomechanical, you know, it, it's, it's ongoing constantly. And so I think actually what, what's absolutely crucial about the mind is that the mind is, the mind is, is molded during training. Mm. And I think, you know, particularly, you know, when you're going along and unless you're getting very close to those big long distances, it was interesting. It was interesting. I was out on the bike the other day and I was out for a, a, a 50 miler and, and you sort of reinforce it every time, every time I do a big, long, you know, big, long uh, session is that the misery is in the last half an hour. Mm. It's not in the first half hour. So you can do as many hour rides as you like, but what it won't do is it just won't create the environment in which you can, you can, you can mm. adapt the right psychological approach, the right nutritional approach, the right technical, tactical approach, unless you are pushing it to the limit. So I think you know, training, training is absolutely crucial because it's in training where you develop all of those skills. Yeah, yesterday we were riding west first into a 20-mile-an-hour headwind. I mean, it was just an hour and a half, and, and there's some uphills exposed in that. It's just break it down into little sections, right? I know this section, that'll be a bit more sheltered. Then that bit's going to be exposed, you know. So all those little skills you do in a race, aren't they? You know, in the Norseman, yeah. when I, you know, it's the same course that we've both done. There's there's effectively this six hills, so don't worry about the hill at the end. Just worry about the first hill and get through that one. Then enjoy a bit of the descent then think about the next hill and, you know, just break it down. But you learn that yeah. through training, don't you? Breaking it down into little Absolutely sections. Absolutely right. Those short-term, short-term goals. Even if you're yeah. doing 20, 2100s in the pool, it's like, let's just get through this one rep and then yeah. rather than worrying about number 20. Absolutely right. Okay. Live in the moment. <laughs> one final one for you, Greg. Cool. Um, a gentleman said he's, he's uh, and I'm sure this will have 
be a lot of endurance athletes he has a physically hard job as a carpenter he's struggling with work-life balance he's he's training for triathlon i feel extremely tired if i train every day but i also want to train for a triathlon so how how do i balance that out i mean that's really that's a really difficult sort of juggling act isn't it Listen, it's incredibly difficult. And, but I think you know, it goes back to the point about support. You know, what, what, what is required when you are busy, when you are short on time, it's about quality. It's about making the most of every opportunity mm. that you get. You know, what you don't get is, is we used to as, as, you know, when you're an elite athlete and it's your job, you know, you can have a couple of duff sessions. It doesn't make any difference. But when you've only got four sessions in a week, you need to make those four absolutely nailed on that they are developing exactly what you need at the right time. So I think it, what what I would say is for somebody who's very busy with a manual job is make sure you get the right make sure you get the right coach, and what that right coach will do is optimize your performance uh, for each of those each of those sessions that you've got available to you. Uh, and it certainly doesn't you know the fact that you've got a very physical job and you can only put in a certain number of sessions a week doesn't preclude you from participating. Uh, without any shadow of doubt just what you have to be is a, a lot more planned um, mm. and and finding the right support will help you do that yeah and I guess if you do a little less than you think you should but you're able to be consistent with that it's better than trying to do too much and then getting ill or injured because then you're not doing anything yeah I, yeah and, and, and you know again that, that, that's that's really what encompasses quality you know it's about it's about doing the right thing at the right time and, and I think that's the key to it uh, and I think much like you know to my mind, I mean, like, you know, I wrote the book that, it's, that was titled, you know, Achieve the Impossible. I think anything is possible. I really do. But, but certainly one of the things about when you're goal setting is that making it timely, I think, is important. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, if, if you are very busy and you've got a manual job and, and you are fatigued, then, you know, and you're going to do your first triathlon, don't give yourself a month to prepare. Yeah. You know, plan it, plan it in, in a timely fashion because, because you haven't got the, the time that other people have got. Uh, then what you're probably going to need is a longer period of time to lead up into that. So, you know, make sure that what you are doing is setting goals which are realistic uh, and achievable. You mentioned that book there, Greg, Achieve the Impossible. We will make a note of that in the show notes. Um, You've also written another book more recently, Bump It Up. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? (laughs) Well, I mean, that is about exercise during pregnancy. Um, Ah. And that, that, I mean, that came about, um, as, as I've said, you know, we've got three kids and my wife is, uh, my wife is very active. Uh, she's a PE teacher, trains a PE teacher. Um, and when, when she was pregnant with our first, you know, the question was, you know, what can I do? And I said, oh, you know, there, there's bound to be a load of books out there as there are, you know, preg- pregnancy, there's a lot of literature on pregnancy. Um, and we looked across the bookshelves, not a single one. I mean, so very few and far between. You could find texts, uh, find books on on yoga and pregnancy, mm-hmm. but actually really nothing on exercise. So we then looked online, took a look to see what the information was online. And I mean, as expected, uh, it was um, it was uh, it was lacking. And sadly, I think very dangerous in some instances. Mm. So actually, that, that led me to, to write the book. So I wrote that book. It's actually a few years ago now, but I wrote the book, um, which effectively goes through the trimesters uh, and looks at, at optimizing physical activity, which is really important for pregnant women, really important um, for both their health and the health of their baby. And actually, interestingly enough, now with <laughs> we know with epigenetics, the future health uh, of their child as they grow. Uh, is is going <clears> to <throat> be influenced by the physical activity during pregnancy. So that, that's where that book came from. 
And I see you've got this this new app, Bean Light. Although I did I did try to look for that, and it said it wasn't available in my jurisdiction. What's that all about? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what jurisdiction you're in. I'm in Yorkshire. <laughs> oh, in that case, so that case, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I tell you, we've got a couple of things. So we've got an online platform, and in fact, we made the Bean the Bean we made uh, free to access at uh, the very start of lockdown back last March. Um, and so you can actually access that. That is, um, it's hit sessions uh, with the personal trainer plus uh, nutrition and meal ideas, uh, which we gave open access to. And actually, we've now just developed and just launched a new platform called Rise, R-I-S-E, which to my mind is, is an area which is very underserved in the sector. And that is that we talk an awful lot about things like Couch to 5K, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, for the 11 million people in this country who do less than 30 minutes in a week, um, actually, the couch to the front door is, oh, the, yes. biggest, is the biggest challenge. Yeah. Uh, and so what, what I've done is with a team, we, we've developed a platform, which effectively is, for want of a better word, couch to front door. What it does, it, it provides at-home exercise, starting at a very low level and progressing slowly mm-hmm. uh, to bring to give people physical literacy so that they understand movement and their body um, and also i think crucially is actually confidence so the idea is that with rise is that you get to a point where you can then engage with mm-hmm. with bean or you can engage with couch to 5k or you can go to a gym um, because i think often we forget we forget about those people who really have, do yeah. have done nothing mm. and how scary uh, exercise can can feel mm. greg i could talk with you all day um, oh, it's great, about, mate. I've about it. your exploits and uh, adventures and all that knowledge you've got under the hood there brilliant thank you so much for being on the show really appreciate it in your busy schedule well listen thanks for having me on it's been absolutely brilliant I, oh. as you know i love talking <laughs> <laughs> well you said you didn't think people have put up with 45 minutes of you we've, well, we've, we've got we've got i'm squeezed out a little bit more than that but i'm sure they'll i'm sure they'll be asking for you to come back so i, I do appreciate it. thank you so much right thanks mate Thanks to Professor Greg White for joining me on this week's podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. Just a reminder that if you're interested in being part of my SWOT Inner Circle, you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just £1. Please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for that link in the show notes below. As always, we'll be back next week with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.